This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Ladies and gentlemen, football is back. And now as we look over the landscape of college football, a lot has changed, or maybe will change, within the next couple of years. And let's not kid ourselves. It's all about the money. The Pacific 12 Conference, known by some as the Conference of Champions for all intents and purposes, is no more. To put it in clearer and better terms, it has one foot in the grave and another foot on a banana peel. With USC and UCLA, the conference's two flagship schools, joining the Big Ten, it precipitated what we have been seeing as we head into the 2023 college football season. Teams leaving the Pac-12 in droves. The current incarnation of the Pac-12, which is essentially on life support, will be another conference along with the defunct Big 8 and Southwest Conference relegated to the dustbin of history, which is really a shame considering this conference I'm a huge fan of. Hello and welcome to this Return to Football edition of Historically Speaking Sports Podcast here on the Sports History Network. In this edition, we will look through the eyes of history at the end of one of the bedrock conferences of college football, the Pac-12, which has a long and distinguished history. With college football's ever-changing landscape, I thought it would be fitting to look back at the great teams, players, and coaches that made the Pac-12 conference what it was. Later in the podcast, we will send a shout out to a very obscure preseason game in the mid-1990s that both started my team's most successful season in their history, but it was also the moment that I fell in love with this team all over again, and a love affair that has lasted ever since. And, like every episode, we will do our top five. This edition, since this is indeed the return to football edition, we will continue up my five, we will count down my five best NFL rivalries. They are all heated, all of them interesting, all of them fun, and of course historic. All of that and so much more coming up in this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we put a historical spin on current sports headlines, which is also a member of the Sports History Network. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast 
as well as Jersey Dispatch on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network. Hello and welcome back to the program. I'm Dana Augusta, your host for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. Now, this portion of the program is called our main event segment. And for those that are new here, I try and what most people I try to tie in with what most people are talking about in the world of sports and try to look at it through the prism of history. In this case, however, I'm going to do something a little different. Now, normally, I would give facts and anecdotes about a specific team or player or maybe some interesting event that took place in sports history that reminds me of something that is going on in sports news right now. Yet, this episode's main event will simply be a rant about one thing that everyone in the world of sports is talking about as we head into the new college football season, and that is the end of the Pac-12 Conference. And since this is one of two episodes of our Welcome Back to Football specials, this is, of course, football related. But it is the current topic of conversation with college football fans from across the country. To give you a little context or overview of the Pac-12, it was established back in 1915, which was back then known as the Pacific Coast Conference, as opposed to the Atlantic Coast Conference or the ACC, but more about them later. The member schools that made up the PCC were schools that would become the backbone of the Pac-8 and later the Pac-10. This lasted until 1959 where the conference name was changed to the mouthful title of the Athletic Association of Western Universities or the AAWU. That lasted just nine years until the conference changed names once again to the more familiar Pac-8 in 1968. And then with the addition of Arizona and Arizona State in 1978, it became the Pac-10. Then by 2012, Utah and Colorado was added where it became the current Pac-12. And since 2012, all was good and everyone was happy. The Pac-12 continued to have conference champion tie-in with the Rose Bowl. And they would continue to do battle with the winner of the Big Ten. And once again, everyone was happy. But no one knew that on the horizon things were about to change that would alter college football as we knew it. You could say that the first domino fell was when the schools Texas and Oklahoma would leave the Big 12 and join the mighty Southeastern Conference, bringing with them the traditional Red River rivalry. Then all of a sudden, UCLA and UCLA was reported to be leaving the Pac-12 to the possible riches of the Big Ten. Yes, the Bruins and Trojans are leaving. Of all the schools to leave the Pac-12, but the two biggest and most influential schools of the conference that had been the backbone of the conference since, oh, the 1940s? In addition, they're the second largest media market in the country and the largest that gives a rip about college football, Los Angeles. You have to remember that New York City doesn't have a college, doesn't have college football like talking about. Yeah, they may quote unquote follow Syracuse or possibly Rutgers, but nothing like Los Angeles following the Bruins from Westwood and the Trojans from downtown Tinseltown. 
Now, UCLA, for all intents and purposes, is a basketball school. In their illustrious basketball history, the Bruins have won 11 national championships, including 10 in a span of 12 years between 1964 and 1975. In football, however, not so much. UCLA have won, count them, one national championship back in 1954 and only one Heisman Trophy winner, which was Gary Beban in 1967. While the Bruins have their place, the Trojans, on the other hand, is a college football blue blood. The men of Troy has the most Heisman Trophy winners, including the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, quarterback Caleb Williams. The list of great players and coaches reads like a who's who in the history of college football, such as coaches John McKay and John Robinson and Pete Carroll. Then there are the players, Mike Garrett, O.J. Simpson, Charles White, Marcus Allen, Carson Palmer, Reggie Bush, and Matt Leinard, who all won the Heisman Trophy, and other and others including Frank Gifford and Ron Yeri and Clarence Davis and Sam Cunningham and Junior Seau and Keyshawn Johnson, just to name a few. For UCLA, it was, for USC, it, rather, it was student body right, and the Coliseum with the torch lit. And the famous fight song, Fight on USC, playing in the background, would no longer be part of the Pac-12, as each now would be bolting to the Pac- to the Big Ten. Now, with these two schools joining the conference, of all conferences, the Big Ten, I'm willing to bet that both Shem Beckler and Woody Hayes and John McKay are all spinning in their graves. Now, wait, there's more. Joining the Big Ten along with USC and UCLA is Washington and Oregon. Oregon will be leaving the Pac-10 and they'll be taking with them the Autzen Zoo, the 100, the 1,000 uniform combinations that they have and all that Nike money and all be part of the Big Ten. And Washington, whose last national championship came in 1991, will be going there too and bringing with them Husky Stadium perched on the banks of Lake Washington, which is the most picturesque backdrop of any stadium in America. The Big Ten, whose name is actually misnomer because now it has 340 teams, was not only the conferences, was not, was not the only conference looking to poach whatever was left of the dead carcass of the Pac-12. The Big 12 was looking to get what was left. In the process, they welcomed back the University of Colorado with their live buffalo and the cowboy hat-wearing coach Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders coaching the University of Colorado, that still seems weird to me. But despite Colorado's stay in the Pac-12, which was brief, they returned to the Big 12, where I feel they had, where they really truly belong. Another team whose stay in the Pac-12 was brief was the University of Utah, who are the defending Pac-12 champions and who, along with Colorado, joined the conference in 2012. The Utes spent most of their history in the Western Athletic Conference and had a cup of tea in the, Mount, in the Mountain West before joining the Pac-12. The other two teams that are looking to move to the Big 12, Arizona and Arizona State. Now, Arizona State for the longest time was dubbed Wide Receiver University with the likes of John Jefferson, Jerry Smith, and Charlie Taylor, just to name a few. Yet, when you think of the Sun Devils, three names come to mind. First, Frank Cush, who won 176 games for the Sun Devils, which included six bowl victories, including the 1970 Peach Bowl in Atlanta and the 1975 Fiesta Bowl, which capped two undefeated seasons in Tempe. The second is quarterback Jake Plummer, 
known as Jake the Snake, he led the Sun Devils to their most recent Rose Bowl appearance in 1997, where the Sun Devils had an undefeated season, yet were denied by Ohio State in a 20-17 thriller in Pasadena. That year, Plummer finished third in the Heisman balloting behind Danny Werfel of Florida and Troy Davis of Iowa State. Last and definitely not least was their best known and maybe their most important player in the history of the program and that was safety Pat Tillman whose stellar career with the Sun Devils made him a fan favorite in Tempe which was a springboard for the, to the National Football League. Yet he would be forever remembered as a hero for not what he did on the football field but the sacrifice that he made for the country that he loved. Moving on from the Sun Devils to their in-state rival the University of Arizona. Now, we all know that the Wildcats are first and foremost a basketball school, yet the football program had its moments of greatness that, which was in the mid to late 1990s when the University of Arizona fielded a defense that ranks one of the greatest in the history of the Pac-12. Led by coach Dick Tomei and All-American linebacker Teddy Bruschi, Arizona's Desert Swarm defense was the focal point of the Wildcats' best era of football since joining the Pac-10 in 1979. But despite their success, the Wildcats, since joining the Pac-12 in 79, is the only school to have never reached the Rose Bowl. And now, despite all the national championships, the Heisman winners, all the All-Americans and the Hall of Fame coaches, Pac-12, unfortunately, is no more. As things continue to be as fluid as it is, and after all, we are indeed talking about college football, and things are always subject to change, there are only four teams remaining from the original Pac-12. Two of them are bitter rivals from the Bay Area, California and Stanford, and the other two, Washington State and Oregon State. First, let's talk about Cal Stanford. As things are progressing, they were... There was some talk, actually, that these two Bay Area rivals were going to end up in another major conference not named the Big 12 or the Big 10. Would it be the Mountain West? Nah. Would they go independent? Mm, don't think so. Well, what, well, I, well, how do, what about the SEC? It can't be. Well, where? The ACC. Wait. The ACC with North Carolina and Florida State and Miami and Georgia Tech? And as the kids would say, WTF? This decision would have made Carmen Sandiego herself scratch her head. Geographically, makes no sense. But whenever did college football make any sense? I'll wait. But relax, the ACC had quote-unquote an exploratory meeting and it came to its senses. So, for the time being, Cal and Stanford are staying in the decaying Pac-12. For now. Meanwhile, the other two schools, Oregon State and Washington State, which are in two of the Pac-12 smaller cities, Corvallis, Oregon, and Pullman, Washington, respectively, are basically all dressed up with nowhere to go, feeling like the proverbial odd schools out. Now, looking at the big picture, the Pac-12, a conference that I love since I began watching college football in the early 1980s, are slowly joining such conferences such as the Big 8 and the Southwest Conference that no longer exist, but only in the memory. During my childhood, I could even, and even into early adulthood, I could, when you thought of the Big 8 and the Southwest Conference, the first image that you would have would simply be the option play. The first 
First, the Southwest Conference that is essentially all of the major Texas schools, and they threw in Arkansas just for fun. You had Texas, of course, and the two schools in Houston, University of Houston and Rice. Then you then in Northern Texas, in the Dallas Metroplex, you had Baylor and TCU, SMU. And also in the conference was Texas Tech and Texas A&M. Now, to me, as a sports historian, when you think of the Southwest Conference, first thing I think of would be all the major recruiting violations teams in this conference dealt with in the 80s and 90s, including the most famous one, when Southern Methodist University was hit with the death penalty when NCAA demanded the school discontinue its program temporarily. Another thing that comes to mind is the annual Thanksgiving weekend game between Texas and Texas A&M, normally played in wet, rainy, cold conditions either in Austin or in College Station. And speaking of Thanksgiving, whenever I think of Thanksgiving college football games, the top of the list would be the 1971 Thanksgiving Day game between Oklahoma and Nebraska, which was to the Big A Conference what Auburn and Alabama is to the SEC. That game was dubbed the game of the century, in which college football, as it, which it has always confused me, two years earlier in 1969, Texas and Arkansas played each other on a Friday after Thanksgiving, and that game was also dubbed the game of the century. Just two years earlier. Throughout the history of college football, they may, they may have a game of the century take place maybe, on average, maybe every eight years. But in college basketball, however, there's only one. Houston versus UCLA in the Astrodome in 1968. Just that one game of the century. But once again, I digress. For years, Oklahoma and Nebraska, while in the Big A Conference, was must-see TV. Now compared to the games in this day and age that could last up to three hours plus, with all of the running plays that the Sooners and Huskers would run, the game seemed to last about an hour and a half. Later, the key rivalry in that conference, the Big 8 I'm talking about, is Nebraska and Colorado, and their two coaches, Coach Tom Osborne and Bill McCartney. And under McCartney, the Buffaloes won their only national championship in 1990, and their battles with Osborne and the Huskers were legendary. Also in the Big 8 were Missouri, Kansas, Kansas State, Oklahoma State, and Iowa State. And those games and teams and the conference were legendary. By the mid-90s, the conference would combine in a way to, it would combine to form the now mega conference, the Big 12. Now plus 10. And the question now that's facing college football, but collegiate athletics as a whole is, is this a good idea for college sports? And just like everything else, we just have to wait and see. Now as for the Pac-12, my favorite conference to watch, it's going to get some getting used to. And that's something that I will have to accept as time goes on. But damn it, I'm going to miss it. Coming up as we continue to welcome back football into our lives... I would send a shout out to a really obscure preseason football game in the 1990s that rekindled my love for my favorite team, even though they lost the game. But it was also a springboard to their best and most memorable season. That story coming up. But first, what are the five biggest NFL rivalries that you enjoy watching? I will give you my list. Some are traditional, others are underground, but all have what a rivalry needs hatred angst and passion and not just between the teams but between the cities and the fans as well this 
is the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. We here at the Sports History Network are thrilled to work with our sponsors and partners. With their support, we are able to produce great content for you. The other cool thing is, most of our sponsors and partners offer discounts to pass along to our fans. So if you go to the website today, you'll find Row 1, Royal Retros, Play Classic, Thrive Fantasy, and Mega Seats. With Row 1, you can save up to 15% in the gallery with the code SHN. The Row 1 gallery includes over 5,200 reproduced sports history prints on a variety of sizes, including wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. The Row 1 shop has thousands more unique items with retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long-sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, as well as shower curtains. Royal Retros is the king of throwbacks. They've got jerseys, shirts, hats, collectibles, and more from the defunct leagues and the teams in those leagues. Play Classic has your sports simulation board games. Just use the code SHN to save 10% off your first order. Thrive Fantasy is a daily fantasy sports and esports app for player props. Use the promo code SHN for instant 100% match up to $100. And Mega Seats are tickets with no fees. You can save up to 10% with the code SHN. So there you have it. When you check out the Sponsors and Deals tabs on the Sports History Network website, you'll find plenty of deals to save you some dough. Check it out today! Hello and welcome back to the program. You are tuned in to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. This is our special Welcome Back to Football edition of the podcast, which is the first of two specials that we will be celebrating the return to football to the forefront of the sports conversation and for us, sports history. So before we get back to the show, here's a quick word from one of our sponsors here at the Sports History Network and at his home field apparel. Do you feel that summer heat out there? I certainly do. And it's not just the sun. It's actually the thrill of the upcoming college football season turning up the heat wherever you are. So get ready for the season and dive into the history books with Home Field Apparel, the premium college collegiate apparel brand from Indianapolis. Home Field crafts incredibly comfortable gear designed with iconic vintage nods to over 150 colleges. A live, veritable library of history right there on your chest. So, Homefield is the Indiana Jones of collegiate apparel, uncovering hidden gems from school archives, unique mascots, logos, and even unforgettable moments frozen in time. Visit homefieldapparel.com and shop the archives. Homefield Apparel, where comfort, nostalgia, and the spirit of college football history unite. Again, that's homefieldapparel.com. And now in this episode's top five, we will quickly count down the five best NFL all-time rivalries. Well, at least in my opinion, the five best and most heated rivalries around the National Football League. Now, these rivalries are heated, historic, and full of anger, rage, and hate. 
And it's not only just between the teams, but also the rancors between the organizations and the cities. Now, when you have a rivalry that trickles down to the civic level, well, let's just say you have something special, at least in the rivalry department, that is. Now, the NFL is filled with so many rivalries that are geographic in nature, such as the Rams versus the 49ers, the Packers versus Vikings. Also, there are some where they are involved in a number of big games through the years. They had championships on the line, such as the Colts versus Patriots or the Cowboys versus the Steelers. Then there are the ones that are not only divisional bragging rights that are at stake, but the way the fan bases look at the other as enemies, such as the Jets and the Dolphins or the Giants and Niners. These rivalries have not only stood the test of time, but they also have become must-see games wherever they come around on the schedule. So, without further ado, here are the top here are my top five NFL rivalries. Number five. The entire NFC East. Now, in case of the in the case of the NFC East, the four combatants, the Dallas Cowboys, the Washington Commanders, the New York Giants, and the Philadelphia Eagles have been in the same division since maybe the days of the Ottoman Empire. But beginning in the early 1980s to the present day, the NFC East has been by and large the premier division in all of the NFL. And there was a time when whoever won that division both had home field advantage and an inside track to the Super Bowl, case in point. Presently, the NFC East hasn't had a repeat champion in 20 years. In addition to that, this division, top to bottom, have more Super Bowl championships, 13, than any other division. The, the names in that division are synonymous with the, these collection of teams, and they also are a veritable who's who in NFL history. For the Cowboys, there's the man in the hat, Tom Landry. You also have Bob Lilly and Roger Starbuck and Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, and Michael Irvin, just to name some. Over in the Big Apple, the names of Parcells and Sims and Taylor and Strahan and Eli Manning were the leaders of the Big Blue in their, in their most recent, quote-unquote, glory days since being in the swamps of Jersey. See what I did there? In the city of brotherly love, there was Coach Dick Vermeil and Harold Carmichael and Ron Jaworski. And then there was Reggie White and Jerome Brown and, of course, the vet. That The vet itself is a character. And finally, in the nation's capital, it begins and ends with Coach Joe Gibbs and the Hogs and Riggins and the Fun Bunch. And then there was Theismann and the Over the Hill Gang. The NFC East, or maybe we should call them the NFC Beast. Number four, Steelers versus Browns. Clocking in at the four spot is the Browns and the Steelers. That rivalry, which is one of the most physical and heated rivalries that has been around since the early 1950s, but it also is the most unusual from this respect. Throughout the history of this rivalry, and it has been rare, I mean extremely rare, that both teams were really good at the same time, or conversely, both teams had been equally as bad at the same time. If you really go back and think about it, the Browns were a perennial power in the NFL from the 1950s to the early 1970s, while the Steelers were, to put it lightly, struggling. Things, of course, turned in the 1970s with the Steelers winning four Super Bowls in the decade while the Browns sat and watched Lake Erie burn. 
After the Browns had their moments in the 80s, mostly postseason heartache, the Steelers were alright using a schmug emoji. Then the rivalry went on hiatus when the original Browns bolted to Baltimore and when the new Browns came on the scene in 1999, the rivalry between the Steelers since then is reminiscent to the rivalry between a hammer and a nail. But both teams through and through are products of their environment. Both come from cities that love football and are both gritty and blue collar. The Steelers have, the, have Myron Cope's terrible towel, while the Browns have the infamous dog pound. Along with these two staples of NFL history are the names of great players that were integral parts of this rivalry. First, there was coaches Paul Brown and Blanton Collier and Sam Reticliano and Marty Schottenheimer and players like Otto Graham and Marion Motley and Frank Ryan and of course the late great Jim Brown. Now you know we had to mention Jim Brown at least once in these football specials. Meanwhile, with the Steelers, it all began at the top with the Chief, Art Rooney. Then coaches Chuck Noll, then Bill Coward, to current coach Mike Tomlin. Then there are all the Hall of Famers, Bradshaw and Harris, and Joe Green, and Jack Ham and Jack Lambert, and my fellow Southern University alumnus Mel Blunt. Even though this rivalry isn't the premier rivalry it once was, it's still one of my favorites. Number three, Saints versus Falcons. This rivalry right here for the longest time was the NFL's underground rivalry, meaning it was very heated since the beginning, but was somewhat a secret for the longest time. I personally have a unique perspective of this rivalry considering I was born and raised in South Louisiana, the heart of Saints country, yet I live in the suburbs of Atlanta, so for the entirety of my life, I see this rivalry from both perspectives. Of all the rivalries in the NFL, this is the one, and the only one for that matter, that has a collegiate feel to it. After all, the Saints and Falcons are the oldest teams in the NFL located in the Deep South, where football is looked upon as a secular religion. And both of these teams in their cities and regions are worshipped by a truly devoted following. But the rivalry goes beyond the football field. When the Saints and Falcons face each other twice a year, it is more than just mere bragging rights on the line. In their case, civic pride is at the forefront. Both cities are, for lack of a better term, envious of the, of the other. New Orleans has the culture, the food, and the party atmosphere Atlanta wishes it had. Meanwhile, Atlanta is the business center of the South. It has more prestige and is more popular. The things that New Orleans is envious of. And this jealousy is played out in real time when the Saints and Falcons strap it up twice a year, especially in the NFC South when the NFC South crown is on the line. Fans across the country was finally introduced to the rivalry the night the Saints had returned to a reopened and re-repaired Superdome after Hurricane Katrina on Monday Night Football. I know for a fact that no team in the NFL could have beaten the Saints that night, but for the fans of New Orleans, it could not have been against a more fitting team. And the Falcons? Their fans to this day are still looking for payback. Number 2. Raiders vs. Chiefs As someone who has studied sports history, I have always been interested in the history of the American Football League. My interest in this subject 
started when I was in elementary school, reading such sport, reading a lot of sports history books and almanacs as much as I could get my hands on. Yet, I was always drawn to the league that was dubbed the Mickey Mouse League. Yet, in the final four years of the history of that league, between 1966 and 1969, the rivalry between the Oakland Raiders and the Kansas City Chiefs was the biggest and most brutal rivalry in the NFL, and maybe during that time in all of pro football. They say that styles make fights, and there were no two teams in the history of football that were this different. And all those dualities still exist to this day when you talk about the Raiders and the Chiefs. First, you have the Kansas City Chiefs led by Hank Stram, who was to this day one of the best dressed coaches in football, and his team was expected to follow suit. Get it? They were the ones that wore the team-issued blazer with the red arrowhead on the on the pocket and they had the red ties and the hounds two slacks every player was expected to wear there as they walked off the bus and chiefs played like that as well very straight laced very buttoned up outfit led on the field by quarterback lynn dawson who moonlighted as a sportscaster in the kansas city area then on the other hand and the other end of the spectrum was the Oakland Raiders, led by fellow Hall of Fame coach John Madden, who smoked on the sidelines and his appearance, according to former NFL wide receiver Lance Renzel, looked as if he was the weekend manager of a bowling alley in a bad neighborhood. They were considered the Hell's Angels of pro football, and they played like it. Now, what made this rivalry special was the fact that the Raiders and Chiefs were really, really good teams during the 60s and 70s. In fact, in the final four AFL title games from 1966 through 1969, either the Raiders, Chiefs, or both were in the league title game with an appearance in the Super Bowl on the line. And since the late 1960s, both teams have garnered success during various times at the expense of the other. But the rancor and bitter feelings are still an essential part of this rivalry. And finally, the number one rivalry in the NFL, of course, the Chicago Bears and the Green Bay Packers. In the context of sports history, the Packers and Bears rank up there with Yankees, Red Sox, Lakers, Celtics, Canadians, Maple Leafs, Dodgers, and Giants. Between the two teams, the Packers and the Bears combined for a total of 67 members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame and 22 championships with Green Bay winning 13 and the Bears 9. At the heart of this rivalry that's based in the upper Midwest, three coaches are iconic names of football lore. George Hallis of the Bears and the Packers Curly Lambeau and Vince Lombardi. Each played in iconic stadiums. The Packers play at Green Bay City Stadium, which was renamed Lambeau Field. And the NFL's most, which is the NFL's most hallowed ground. And the Bears, first it was Wrigley Field. Then in 1971, they moved to their current home of Soldier Field. The names that are associated to this long and storied rivalry are far too many to name. But the image of famed Packer of the famed Packer power sweep going against the monsters of the midway defense on a muddy field is the essence of the NFL and has been that way for generations. The Bears-Packers rivalry is the reason why we watch the NFL because these two teams really truly despise each other. 
The best example of this came in a regular season game sometime during the 60s as explained by Hall of Fame halfback Paul Horning. He said right before the game there was a knock on the door. Our, our locker room, the Packers room, the equipment manager opened the door and it's Coach Hallis. Coach Hallis says, let me speak to Coach Lombardi, it's really urgent. So the equipment manager gets Coach Lombardi and directs him to Coach Hallis. Lombardi walks over to him and says, hello coach, can I help you with something? Hallis then says, yeah, there is something you need to know. Lombardi looks at him with a sense of concern. Then Hallis says, quote, you, Vince, you better have your team ready because we're going to kick your ass, unquote. Then Hallis calmly turns around and walks out the locker room. That is the Bears-Packers rivalry in a nutshell. And those are the top five best rivalries in the NFL. And coming up next, we will send a shout out to actually a preseason game that took place on the date of July 30th, 1994. So why are we sending out a shout out to a preseason game? Well, this was the day that won, even though they lost the game, this was the day that the most successful season in the history of my football team officially began. But it was the day that I fell in love with this team all over again. And it had to do with what they were wearing than any player or set of plays during that game. That is coming up after the break. Just a reminder, you are listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row 1 Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row 1 shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1 for access to the full Row 1 catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello and welcome back to this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we celebrate sports from back in the day. And to conclude this episode, the first of two, welcome back to football into our lives from a historical perspective, we conclude the show with a shout out. And I would like to begin this segment with a question. How many preseason games do you remember your team playing? Or 
Is there a favorite moment from a past preseason game? Now, I'm willing to bet that some of you really can't come up with a memorable moment from a preseason game, if you even watch them. I, for one, am a rare exception, and in my case, this is when I fell in love with my L.A. Chargers all over again. Back then, it was the San Diego Chargers. The date was July 30th, 1994, and to be honest, I didn't even know there was a preseason game on that afternoon. And to be honest, I was 21 years old at the time, and I was too busy doing things that a single 21-year-old would be doing in the last few weeks of summer before returning to college. On this particular Saturday afternoon, I was home, and my mom had asked me to go pick up my sister, Keisha, from one of her friend's house where she had spent the night, where she spent the night before, at a part of a sleepover. So, I was heading to pick up my sister, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for the rest of that day. And for those that are listening that grew up in the days before cell phones, back then you really had to be inventive. As I got to my sister's friend Dina's house, her brother Sean had answered the door. Sean and I were friendly, and we had went to the same high school, but he had graduated a couple years before I did, but we did know each other. And as my sister was getting her things, I noticed on their television was a coin toss of a football game, and just by glancing at it, I didn't immediately recognize the team, so I asked Sean who was playing. He said, I don't know, I just turned it on. Then it happened. One of the teams, the one wearing all white, had a blue stripe around the shoulders, a powder blue stripe with a bright golden lightning bolt inside the stripe. Then, at that moment, I realized who it was. The San Diego Chargers, wearing their uniforms from their days in the American Football League. Their opponents that afternoon in Canton was the Atlanta Falcons. They, too, wearing their throwbacks as well. Instead of their familiar black helmets, the Atlanta Falcons were wearing their classic red helmets with the black falcon on the side. The time that the, the, the ones they wore during the heyday of the grit splits. Then I realized what was going on. This was the 1994 NFL Hall of Fame game in Canton, Ohio. And this season was the 75th anniversary of the league. All teams would wear during the year a replica of a classic uniform from its past and the players would wear and my Chargers would wear the classic powder blue uniform with the players number on the side of the helmet which I really 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 like. I was transfixed. Sean on the other hand was like what the heck are they wearing? I didn't even recognize them. I told him what was going on and he was like, man, those Chargers uniforms are dope. I know, and looking at the television screen with extreme fondness, they were gorgeous. After grabbing my sister up, I hurriedly went home to watch the game. And for the next couple of hours, I was glued to the television watching my Chargers. In that time, I had lost my feeling for the Chargers because they had several bad seasons with bad coaches and bad quarterbacks. How many people remember the likes of Billy Joe Tolliver and John Freeze and Mark Vlasic? Yeah, I know. 
I saw the left the Chargers as a fan because, let's face it, they sucked. But this Saturday afternoon in 1994, I fell in love with them all over again and have been with them ever since. Even though they lost the game, I have absolutely no idea what the score was, and actually, it didn't matter. Heck, it was preseason. A quick postscript, though. That season, the Chargers, led by Bobby Ross as coach and quarterback Stan Humphreys, got past the Miami Dolphins and the Pittsburgh Steelers in the postseason to reach their first and to this date only Super Bowl, where they, of course, were trounced by the San Francisco 49ers on that bitter night in Super Bowl 29. But my love for the guys in the lightning bolts have never wavered, even when we did have Ryan Leaf. And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And please, if you have not done so already, please subscribe wherever you hear this podcast. Also, if you want to drop us a line, you could do so at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Or you could check us out on Twitter at historicallysp2. And remember, don't keep this great podcast a secret. Tell your family. Tell your friends, tell your neighbor, hell, tell a passerby on the street if you think they like sports history. And this episode comes to you from the Bill King Memorial Studios in the sports wing of TM4 Enterprises located in the scenic suburban Atlanta in the shadow of Stone Mountain. And until next time, stay cool and stay blessed.